Good morning, everybody. Welcome uh, to our Sunday morning session here at the Digital Cathedral. So glad that you're with me. Hope you've come ready to learn today and to delve a little bit further into the Word of God, Scripture. We're, if you've been following me, we're on part seven this morning of a series that I'm doing called Let's Believe It. Let's Believe It. And I think I've got about four or five more sessions to go in this and we'll be completed with it. We'll get, kind of get back on track of what we started the first of the year, talking about the reconciliation of all things, the manifestation of the sons of God, uh, the book of John. I'm so anxious to get back into the book of John. And then what I just call diving deep, that's just where we, we teach some lessons that um, just take us a little bit further in the progression of our walk. If you have your Bible this morning, I'd like to start at Luke chapter 2. And while you're turning over there, let, let me just say this. This is probably going to be a teaching this morning that, that draws the line between um, a grace community, a grace culture on a larger scale, and the evangelical, charismatic, Pentecostal church that a good portion of us came out of. Most people that are at the Digital Cathedral either are done with church, not going back, want nothing to do with it. They've seen the hypocrisy, the manipulation, the control, the greed. They don't like the system. Love a lot of the people. And I'm going to address that in a couple of weeks about why it's so difficult to come out of that system when we know that it's corrupt and it's polluted, but we still have a draw to the people. So we'll talk about that in a, in a couple of weeks. But most of us have come out of that evangelical background, and there's a lot of flavors in that. There's Baptist, uh, Charismatic, Pentecostal, Holiness, Church of God. I mean, there's a lot of, lot of background in an evangelical community. Most of us that came out of that are well aware of all of the fears that that whole system was based on. I jotted down a few fears that I've encountered in my life, and I've also counseled and talked to people that have encountered these fears in their life. They're pretty common in that strain of Christianity or that group of people that would like to follow Jesus and be disciples of him. Most of us have observed this, and I just jotted a few down. So I'm just going to read these off because we're drawing a line this morning. When I'm done this morning, <laughs> you're going to make a decision. Either you're serving a God that generates fear or you're a God that generates something entirely different. All right? So I don't want to let the cat out of the bag too quick, but let me just say this. My God is not a God of fear. Religion is built and based on fear. Religion needs two things to operate. It needs two things to continue to function. It needs, first of all, paying customers, and it needs returning customers. And a lot of times to generate the paying customers and the returning customers, things were propagated from generation to generation that are not right, that are not reflective of the life of Jesus, nor the Father that he came to fully manifest, but do aid the cause of building the system. When I talk about religion, I'm never talking about people. I love people. My heart goes out to people. I was one of them peeps. So were you. But I am a very much opposed to the system that has just annihilated the faith, the trust, the confidence in people in the Father that they serve. And most of it was generated through fear. Fear of hell. Fear of judgment. Fear of missing God's will. Let me just keep reading a few. Fear of never reaching your destiny. Boy, do you remember that? How much was placed on destiny? You got a call, you got a plan for your life, and you need to obey God, submit to God if you're going to fulfill your destiny. Fear of being deceived. Fear of going to the wrong church. Fear of the devil. Fear of being left behind. Fear of losing your salvation. Fear of breaking church rules. 
fear of not pleasing God. And on and on and on and on. I could, I could have written a page and a half of all of the fears that you and I observed and experienced in our Christian life. And can I just tell you, they're all, they're all un invalid. Went through, went through perfect love, a grace community like the Digital Cathedral, who's part of a larger grace culture. A grace community takes fear to the front door and kicks it out and doesn't give it an invitation back in. Fear has made a lot of money. There's no question about it. These end time prophecy books and the books that are written, uh, they, they have generated a tremendous amount of income for the authors because frankly, fear sells. Fear sells, people buy fear. They want, a, they want a way to get out of all of the fears that they've experienced. So right now, that sacred cow of fear has been thrown on the barbecue grill, brother. And, and the fire of love is getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And that fire of my father's consuming love is just about to consume all forms of religious fear. So I want to draw the line this morning, and I want us to look at some scripture. I want us to look at some things that I hope will give us, as a grace community, a lot of security. I want to start this morning, Luke chapter 2. Let's look at the birth of Jesus. What, the, what was the birth of Jesus designed to do? Things I'm going to get into this morning you don't get into in church. Somebody challenged me this week, and I'm about fixing, to, as we say in Texas, fixing to take up the challenge to do a series of teachings on verses that you never heard taught in church, but changed the entire dynamic of, of the Christian life. So I want to start this morning. I want to look at the, I want to look at the birth of Jesus. What, what was the purpose of his birth? Who did he come for? What was the pronouncement? So let's start over in, in Luke chapter 2, and let me pick it up in verse 10, and let me read down through verse 14. Now this is just about the birth of Jesus. This was the Father sending him into the earth. Verse 10. The angel said to them, to the shepherds, Do not be afraid, or fear not. Don't be afraid. It's just one of the many times. Somebody said there's 365 fear nots in the Bible. I don't know if that's accurate or not. I do know there's a lot of them. And once again, this pronouncement comes. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, watch, which shall be to all people. There's that word all. Study all in the Greek, you find that all means all. None left out. This, this, this is going to be a good deal. Angel is saying, let me paraphrase, this is going to be a fine experience. What's, what, what's going to happen, this one that is coming, it's going to be good for everybody. It's not going to be bad for anybody. It's going to be good for all. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward man. That was the entire intention right there. I mean, there, there's the purpose of the birth of Jesus. He was sent as the Savior to all. And the pronouncement was peace on earth and goodwill to everybody. So as a grace community, part of a larger grace culture that's arising all over the world, when we consider the life and the ministry of Jesus that began at his birth, and this grace culture, this grace community begins to arise, who first of all understands grace, 
We spent an entire session on grace. I gave you a very workable definition of what that word actually means to me. Now, you might have a different definition. That's fine. But I said that grace is basically the unconditional love of God that has been extended toward us, that embraces us. And that's what, that's what Luke said, that the purpose of him coming was to embrace humanity, be good news to everybody. Not only does it embrace us, it brings us into the very life of God himself. That's the foundation of everything we believe. That's the foundation of everything I teach. If you come to the Digital Cathedral, if you bring your friends and family to the Digital Cathedral, I guarantee you, you're going to hear a message that is based on the unconditional love of God that has been extended to all men, that embraces us all and brings all into his very life. That's the, that's the foundation. Then we talked about the first pillar that goes up, which is to understand, have a right understanding of God. The right understanding of God is that he is a relational father. He's not judicial. He's not punitive. Everything that the father's done, and we traced it from Genesis 1, first chapter of the Bible, to the last verse, the last chapter of the Bible, it's all about relationship. We walked you through that 20, 21st, 22nd chapter of Revelation that showed you very plainly that nobody's left outside the gates of the city. It takes a choice, takes a decision. I'm going to talk about that this morning. But the gates to the city never shut. The spirit and the bride are always inside saying, come on in, drink of the water of life freely. So he's a relational God. That was the first pillar. Second pillar we put down, looked at the character of that relational father. And we said the character is always love. The only definition I know of, of the father in the Bible is in 1 John when it says God is love. Nowhere does it say God is vengeance, God is judicial, God is angry, right? Everything that the Father does comes out of that love that is always restorative in nature. It's always embracing in nature. It is always extended to all in nature. So that brings us to the question we're going to deal with this morning. This is where, this is where the rubber's going to meet the road, and this is where... Um, it's going to be difficult for you to go back to the church that you came out of, most likely unless you go to a grace church that does not preach a mixed message of grace and works. <clears throat> you do this, Jesus does this. You ask him into your heart, he comes into your heart. You know the transactional theology that most of us cut our teeth on. This is what's going to separate the grace community from the evangelical community. Very simple question that we have to answer as a grace community. The question is this, for whom or who was the gospel given? Who was on the receptive end of the gospel? Did he come to seek and to save all, as Luke says? Or did he come to seek and to save at the end of the day when the dust settles, he's only saved a few, saved a minority? Has he only saved those that Calvinism teaches that were predestined ahead of time to go to heaven and others that were predestined to go to hell? God's all-powerful, a Calvinist would say, but he's only chosen a few to go to heaven and he gets great glory out of watching others tor being tormented in fire forever. Or, or did he come to just save a small minority that have prayed the magic prayer, accepted him into their heart as their personal savior, have obeyed him in all that they know to do, as the Armenians would teach. There's not one verse in Scripture that says you must ask Jesus into your heart as your personal Savior. There's no such thing in Scripture as the prayer of salvation, the magic prayer, I call it. No such thing. Did he come to, to save all? 
to seek and to save all or just a small minority? That's the question we got to deal with. That's a question you have to answer and be convinced of within your own, within your own self before you can ever share this message with somebody else. So let's look at a couple of scriptures. We're going to look at a lot of scripture this morning. 2 Peter chapter 3. Let's see what the intent of the Father was. 2 Peter chapter 3. And let's just read verse 9. Can we do that? 2 Peter chapter 3. And let's see what the desire, let's see what the will, let's see what the plan of the Father was. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9 says this. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness but is long-suffering toward us. Watch what Peter said. The will of the Father is his desire that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That change of mind, that metanoia, should change direction in the way that they're going. So it's the Father's desire. It's the, it's the Father's heart. It's the Father's will that none perish, but that all come to repentance. Jesus was sent. He was birthed into the earth as a, as a sign of goodwill to all men to fulfill the plan of the Father. Did he fulfill it? All right, hold that verse. Now remember, it's the desire of the Father that none perish. I don't see anywhere in Scripture where God ever said, this is my desire, this is my will, that it didn't come to fruition at some point, that the will was not accomplished. I don't think you can find me one place where God said, this is my desire, that the desire did not fulfill itself. So let's look over in John chapter 4 and let's see what Jesus had to say. John chapter 4 and verse 34. John chapter 4 and one page here. John chapter 4 and verse 34. What did Jesus say about this? Jesus said, my, my food, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, watch, and to finish his work. Jesus is saying that the purpose he was sent for, which the Father disclosed to us, was that none perish, all should come to repentance. Jesus said, my, my plan, I'm here to fulfill the will, the plan of the Father. Let me read that 34th verse again. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Same thing Luke said. It was Jesus' desire and plan to come to seek, not only to seek, but to save that which was lost. So at least a little bit doubt. There's no doubt there that Jesus was born and Jesus was sent to all people to fulfill the desire of the Father. That's the whole purpose. God came in the flesh. The Father came in flesh form and revealed himself, revealed his heart, his temperament, his desire, his will. And through the incarnation, through the flesh man Jesus, who was 100% God, 100% flesh, he said, now unless he's a liar, unless he's pulling our leg, he said, I've come to absolutely fulfill it. Now your question is this, was he successful? Did he do what he said he would do or did he only do it 50%, 30%, 20%? I grew up thinking probably 10% of the people on the planet were going to heaven, the rest were going to burn in hell forever. I never, nobody ever told me about this. Nobody ever laid that out and explained it. That's the purpose of his coming, the purpose of his birth. So it lays it out pretty plainly. Now, what about his death? We saw the start of his life. Let's go to the end of his life. Did he die for a minority of people while the rest were excluded? Or did his death on the cross embrace the whole of humanity? What was the purpose of his death? 
We saw the purpose of his birth. What's the purpose of his death? Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Oh, this is going to get good before we get over. Going to get better and better. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9 says this. For we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. That's a very inclusive statement, that he might taste death for everyone. That's pretty plain. When Jesus took the whole of humanity into himself, he, he absorbed, that's our definition of grace. He absorbed, he embraced, he took into himself the whole of humanity and Hebrews, I don't, I don't know how you can misinterpret these verses we're going to talk about this morning, says that he tasted death for everyone. That means he died for everybody. There was nobody left outside. The death included everyone. Does everybody know that he died for them? Absolutely not. But that's the job. That's the real job of evangelism. Evangelism is to say that he's died for you. He's already died for you. Therefore, you never have to die. Let's confirm that a little bit, can we? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, because this is very important. Um, because we believed and we taught in the evangelical circles, charismatic, where I came, where I cut my teeth, went to the seminary, got my all the degrees you want to have that's on a thermometer. We taught, you know, that he only died for those that accepted him. You had to pray the prayer. You had to ask him into your heart. And those are the ones that he died for. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what scripture says. It says he tasted death for every man. All right, let's, let's unwind it another verse. 2 Corinthians 5, 14. The love of God constrains us because we judge thus. This is, this is the judgment. This Paul says, this is our opinion. This is our view. This is the fact. This is the objective truth. If one died for all, then all died. If one died for all, then all died. So it's a point when the man wants to die. So you've already died your death. You died your death with Christ. Paul said Jesus died for all. Therefore, all died. So all of humanity was embraced in the life of Jesus at his death. The pronouncement of his coming was peace on earth, goodwill to all men. He began to he accomplished that through his death. Now let's let's keep let's look a little bit more at this second chapter of Corinthians, uh, chapter five. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse fifteen, goes on to say, "And he died for all." Does that pretty plain? And he died for all that those who live. We're living the life now because he died for us, all in different levels of awareness, consciousness. Uh, I'm living more today than I've ever lived in my life because I understand more. That we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So let me ask you a question. It is, the, is, is it the same all who died with Christ, verse 14, as the all for whom he died in verse 15? Of course it is. It's everybody. It's, it has to be the same. To think differently is ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. Yet that's what we taught for years, that he only died for some. You, you had to receive him for the death to be effective. Listen to me. First Adam went to the cross. Second Adam came out of the tomb, filled with life. Jesus died for every person 
that was ever associated, whatever you, whatever you believe about Adam, every person that was, that had, that was drug into sin. I don't, I don't believe we have an Adamic nature, but I'm going to read you a verse from Romans chapter five in just a minute that shows that Adam opened the door for all of us. All of us walked in. I don't believe you were born in sin. I don't believe you have an Adamic nature. We're going to see in chapter Romans five twelve that it was our choice. Jesus died for every sinner that was in Adam. Whatever you think Adam did, Jesus took it upon himself at the cross. All right, back up just a little bit. 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 15, verse 45. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 45. I want to come back to 2 Corinthians. I want to hold it right there. Verse 45 of 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. All right, here's what it says. The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Then he goes on to say in this 15th chapter, or he said just a little bit earlier as a basis of this, watch, watch, you, this is one you don't hear in church. 22, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now what the evangelic would say, yeah, right there it says you got to be in Christ. We just read that he, if one died for all, then all died. You were, he, it was a co-crucifixion that you were with Christ the whole time. You were co-buried with him, co-resurrected, co-ascended. It's not a question of praying a prayer to get into Christ. You were in Christ. So everyone that was in Adam, whatever you think Adam did, Whatever you think, the death sentence that Adam brought upon humanity, whether, and I'm not going to get into a theological debate right there, because Adam's been annihilated. A new creation, a new race came out of the tomb, and as a result of that, all things became new. And that's what it says back in 2 Corinthians. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Chapter 5. Watch the two therefores here. Chapter 5, verse 17, <clears throat> verse 16. Therefore, there's two, there's two conclusions here. The word therefore, whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, it's a, it's a statement of conclusion. Paul will do some teaching like we just read for the love of God constrains us because we judge if, if Christ, if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, verse 15, that those who live should live for him. Therefore, here's the conclusion. He's done the teaching. Now he's going to give us the conclusion. He's going, to, he's going to cliff note it for us in two verses. Therefore, from now on, we know no one according to the flesh. It means we don't know people by their actions. We don't know people by their behaviors because that's not their identity. Their identity is in Christ. Their identity is brand new person. Even though we knew Christ in the flesh, according to the flesh, yet now we don't know him that way any longer. Second conclusion, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, are you in Christ? Yes, you were, you were crucified with Christ. One died, if one died for all, then all died. And verse 15 says that he died for all. He put, you were placed in Christ. The reality of the, the fact is you were placed in Christ before the foundation of the world. Objectively, now subjectively, the Father walked it out right here and made it an, 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 a subjective reality. It was objectively true. And I'm, I've got a lot to say about objective, subjective. Objective means it's fact, it's established, it's done. You can't change it. 
Subjective is when you come to the realization of it. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things passed away. All things have become new. So every person was drug into sin because of Adam and humanity's association with him. Now, it says in Romans chapter 5, and I want to spend a little bit of time in Romans chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5 and Romans 5 have got to be the most, two of the most powerful chapters in all of Scripture. If you want to do some good study, just spend some time in 2 Corinthians 5 and Romans 5. Everything I'm telling you this morning is, is verified, is backed up. If you have to be legal, you have to have the Bible for it, you're going to find it absolutely true in 2 Corinthians 5 and Romans 5. Now, as you grow and mature, you're going to understand from the spirit that is within. The spirit of truth is going to lead you to exactly what I'm telling you this morning. But if you still need to be legal, if you still need your Bible to verify it, Romans 5, 2 Corinthians 5 is going to tell you exactly what we're saying this morning. Look what it says concerning Adam and your plight in life because of Adam. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Therefore, as by one man sin entered the world, the door was open to sin, and death by sin, and thus death spread to all men. Now that's what the church has used to say you were born with an endemic nature, because death spread to all men. But if, if we would just read the next three words, it throws an entirely different light on it. Let me read it the verse and we'll put the last three words with it. Therefore, as by one man sin entered the world and death by sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. So you weren't, you weren't born into sin. You were born under the influence of the Adamic sin of what Adam did in the garden. There was a, a, a rebellious flow to the culture and we all walked into it of our own volition. That's what he's plainly saying, because all sin. So is, does Adam have some accountability? I really believe he does. I believe, I believe he does. Now, we've, we've been well suited to the fact to believe that because of Adam, then we were all born sinners. But that's not what the scripture says. See, we, we read that, but we didn't put it. We didn't read the last three words because all sinned. Jesus didn't sin. He wasn't drug into that. that. That's why he was the perfect one to represent us. That's why our death is in him. We died in one who never sinned. Therefore, we have not sinned. We're a new creation. Old things have passed away. We read that 12th verse, but we never read four verses down in verse 16. Now listen to verse 16. We're going to spend some time here in Romans 5. And the gift, which is Jesus, his coming, his death, is not like that which came to the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in, con in condemnation. When we sinned, we fell in condemnation. When we sinned, we fell in guilty. We felt guilty. We felt like the original guy did in the garden. We hid, hid from God, ran from God, didn't want a fellowship with God, wanted no part of it. For the offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses, resulted in justification. So we start to see a contrast here between what first Adam did and what last Adam did. Let me read that 16th verse again. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. 
For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. We all experienced that. Our own volitional will took us into a place where we were missing the target, sin. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. So here's the point I'm trying to make. Here's the point I want to make. I want to drive this home. None of us had anything to do, including believe it, confess it, accept it, to be included in what Adam did as the first go-around at creation. None of us had anything, including believe it, for the result of Adam's sin to connect us. We were connected to Adam through our own disobedience, through which he opened the door. Sin entered the world, it says in Romans 5. Through Adam, sin entered the world. In the same way, what last Adam did affects us in the same way, whether we believe it or accept it. I'm going to let that sink in. What first Adam did affected us. We didn't believe it. We didn't accept it. We didn't accept. We didn't, we didn't ask Adam into our life as our, as, as our personal Adamic nature. We didn't ask Adam. We, we got it. We, we came into it. In the same way, what Christ did, there's nothing about asking for it to be an objective fact. Here's where a lot of people get confused. This is what... This is what the church sets on. Verse 17. Romans chapter 5, verse 17. You know what? For if by one man's offense death reigned by the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Much more those who receive, right there it is. If you don't receive abundance of grace, if you don't receive the gift of righteousness, then you're not going to reign in life. See there, you have to do something. You have got to receive it. You, you just, you, we, just, we just can't let that part go. I would never suggest, hear me closely, I would never suggest that we don't need to believe and receive and accept. I would never teach that. I don't teach that. I'm not a universalist. I don't believe that um, Jesus is out of the picture. I don't believe that whatever you do or how, whatever you live or however... That, that you're, you get a free pass. I don't, I'm, I don't teach that. The question is this. What happens when we do believe it? What happens when we do accept it? What happens when our eyes are open? Your eyes were open. He opened your eyes. You didn't open your eyes. You can't believe it and accept it until he reveals it to you. Now here, listen, listen. We believe it and receive it, not to make it a fact, not to make it so. Not to make it a, a truth. We receive it and believe it so that we can enjoy it. So we can walk in and have the benefits. Do you, do you understand it? The objective truth is you are already as saved as you're ever going to be. You're, you're as much in Christ as you're ever going to be. That's objective fact. You died with Christ, buried with Christ, rose with Christ, new creation. Subjectively, however, there's a great advantage to receiving and believing it. That's when you walk into it. I'm, I am walking in more today than I ever have because I see more, I believe more, I receive more. Does that mean 
30, 40, 50 years ago, that it was not an objective fact in my life that I died with Christ, I rose with Christ, I ascended with Christ? Absolutely not. But the more we believe, receive, see, the deeper the revelation goes, the more the benefit comes. Now, most of you were taught that it doesn't happen until you believe it. Most of you were taught it doesn't happen until you receive it. Most of you were taught that nothing goes on until, until you cross that threshold and you make a commitment, that you walk in obedience, that you come out of sin, you get your life straightened up. And I challenge that. There's not one scripture that would, that would verify that. Not one. If it is, then it makes what you do finish the work of the cross and not Jesus. If it takes your stamp of approval to finish the fact then Jesus could not say it is finished. To, it makes you the deciding factor. Right? And here's what's going to happen. Here's what happens in churches all over, all over America today. People are questioning because they believe. Nothing happens till they believe. They're outside the family. Jesus didn't really die. He only dies for those that believe it. They're now, they're now being hammered in church this morning about if they believe enough, if they believe right. If, if, if they're not messed up, if they have not sinned this last week. Let me assure you, let me assure you something. It is the death, it is the burial, it is the resurrection of Jesus that makes your redemption, makes your justification a fact, an objective truth. It's not your acceptance. It's not your agreement. That's the message of grace. Grace is the unconditional love of God extended to us whereby he embraces us and brings us into his very life. Otherwise, if you don't believe it that way, you're going to be stuck in a works righteousness. A works righteousness, a work of righteousness is anything that you do that makes you right with God, that you have to do something to make you right with God. That makes you think it's your doing that you're the one that pulled the trigger, That's, that seals you, that redeems you, that makes you right with God. You're believing and you're receiving on the level that truly changes you comes through a simple response to the revelation of the established fact. I hope I'm not going too fast for you this morning. The fact is already established that you are redeemed, you're justified, you're righteous, you're whole, you're a son, you're a daughter of God. That is the objective fact. Now, when the light comes on, and it's a progressive light, the light gets brighter, 20-watt bulb, 50-watt bulb, 100-watt bulb, finally, this thing is a spotlight. You see more, you experience more, you live in more, you walk in more. The kingdom is a greater reality. That's the subjective aspect of this. Now, just to make sure you understand the objective subjective, let me read a verse let, let me read that 18th verse again from, from Romans chapter 5. We're going to keep looking at this. Therefore, as by one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, by one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men. Does that settle in? Did your pastor ever tell you that for all the years you sat in church? Therefore, as by one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, by one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, 
resulting in justification of life. All men have received justification of life. Does everybody know it? No. There's probably, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of people have in Houston, Texas, city I live in, have absolutely no idea what they have, what they possess, or who they are. That verse, Romans 5.18, you need your evangelical pastor to help you misunderstand Romans 5.18. It clearly points out that it is fully the work of Jesus as a fact that justifies everybody. Nobody's left out. Nobody's left out. So again, I say, we believe it to experience it. We believe it and receive it to enjoy it. You don't believe it to establish it. You do not believe it and receive it to make it so. It is already so. You can believe it or not believe it. It doesn't really, it doesn't really adjust or, or change the fact that it's a completed, universal work that was done at the cross. I'm doing some powerful teaching this morning. Hope you're catching it. If you've been indoctrinated to believe that we're only included when we believe in Christ, when we accept Christ, when we ask him into our life, I want to I, I humbly ask you to consider something. If that's so, then we are assigning a greater impact to the sinful act of the first Adam than we are to the righteous act of Christ. We're saying, in effect, that Adam was more powerful than Jesus. That what Adam did affected everybody, but what Jesus did just affects a few. You've got to believe it, receive it, accept it, ask him into your life. Let me, let me read that 15th verse again out of Romans chapter 5. Let me, let me just read this again. Romans chapter 5, verse 15. The free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died... Much more, much more. If that happened, if Adam was able to pull that off, much more, the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded to many. And the many there is a, it's a, it's a translator's mess up. He, it was too good to be true, so they put many rather than all. The right word should have been should have been all. Does it make sense to believe that Adam's sin pulled everybody in? Even if you don't know it, don't accept it, don't believe it, don't acknowledge it. But the last Adam only affects those that acknowledge and have faith in him. Wouldn't that make the first Adam a whole lot more powerful and stronger, having a greater effect on humanity? Make Jesus a failure. It'd make first Adam a success, second Adam a failure. Adam's work in the garden didn't make us potential sinners. And, I, and I'm kind of sticking with traditional teaching there. Adam's act in the garden opened up the door so that we all walked through and became sinners. Let, let me read that 18th verse again of Romans chapter 5. I closed my Bible, but I just, I got to read this again to you because I, I just don't see how we can miss this. This is important. This the reason I'm hammering this is because this is what separates a grace community from a typical church. <clears throat> when you come into the digital cathedral, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit you with these things that's going to challenge you, that's going to stretch your thinking. And some people just click me off. Some people write me off saying, that guy's a heretic. Fine, write it off. This is not for everybody. This is not the time everybody's going to get it and receive it. 
Let me read that 18th verse again from Romans chapter 5. See if, how hard you got to try to not understand it, to not get it. Therefore, as by one man's offense, judgment came to all men resulting in condemnation. Even so, by one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men. Full stop. And that one righteous act of one man, Jesus, resulted in justification of life. Now, I know a lot of you sitting there thinking, well, what about this verse? And what about that verse? What about Romans, you know, says that you have to believe and receive for salvation? I, I know that a lot of you are going to try to think of a verse that contradicts. And you know why you, you, you throw those in there? Because the church has majored on the subjective, the believe, the receive. And they have totally, they, they have made that, they have made salvation an experience. It's not basically an experience. They've made salvation like notches in a gun. You know, how was service today? Man, we had 47 people accept Jesus into their heart as their personal savior. Like everything started at that point. The verses that appeared to contradict what I'm telling you this morning are the verses that highlight the subjective. But the subjective can only come out of the objective. If it was not an established fact, if it already wasn't true, if it already wasn't distributed to all men, you could not believe it. You can only believe what is true. You cannot, <clears throat> write this down, you cannot receive by faith what grace has not already given to you. It's impossible. You cannot receive by faith what grace has not given. Grace is the foundation. Grace is the unconditional love of God that has been extended to us that embraces us and brings us into the very life of God. You say, well, I've never heard about this subjective subjective. Can I show you a verse of scripture that brings the two together? Let me show you. First, first Timothy chapter four, verse 10. Another verse you don't ever hear in church. First Timothy chapter four, verse 10. I, I, if I did a series on verses you never hear in church, I probably would never leave, leave the series. There are so many. All right, 1 Timothy chapter 4. This is where we're going to see the subjective and the objective brought together. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach. Paul said, man, I'm, I'm beat up over this. I suffer reproach, and you will too. I, have, I can't tell you how much reproach I have gone through in the last 20 years teaching this message. I don't have any friends left hardly. I, I could count them probably on one hand. Pastors, I don't know any pastors only guy that really hooked up with me, my, my buddy Darren Begley, uh, passed a year or so ago from mesothelioma. I don't know anybody else in Houston. He said, for this cause, we, we labor and suffer reproach. We keep laboring, but we're going to get reproached because we trust in the living God. Watch, 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 watch. We trust in the living God who is the savior of all men. Objective, done deal. It's happened. The receipt's been signed paid for in full. You got the whole load. Can't add anything to it. Especially, he says, especially those that believe. So is there a benefit? Is there, is there something good about believing? Absolutely. The advantage, especially in the verse, is the subjective walking into it. But notice what he says in the last part of that 10th verse. Especially to those that believe. 
the first part of the of the verse is the objective fact. Done deal. Hover. He's the savior of all men. It's you can't improve on that. You can't misunderstand it. And then he says the subjective truth is especially to those that believe. So I don't do I want people to believe? Absolutely. Do I want you to receive? Absolutely. Every week that you come into the digital cathedral, I try to bring something, some food, fresh food, fresh bread out of the oven. Put it on your plate so that you got something to believe and to expand in your understanding and awareness of. We believe in it because it's already done. It's already true. The success of the work of Jesus on the cross is not up to me. It's not up to my decision. So pillar number three, pillar number one, the base, all right, the base members, grace, foundation, pillar number one, right perception of God. Pillar number two is understanding the character of God, which is love, nothing but love. And pillar number three in a grace culture is the pillar of inclusion. This is so vital. If this is what separates us from the church world, what Jesus did for one, he did for everybody. He didn't do it for a select few. He didn't only do it, he didn't do it just for those that believe him. Let's agree on that. This is vitally important. Let's believe on that. This is the message to the world that eliminates this separation between God and man. This is the verse that, that it totally annihilates any division. You have a ministry of reconciliation. You have a ministry to tell people, Father was in Jesus. I'm going to read it for you in just a minute out of 2 Corinthians. He was in Jesus and he's embraced you. You have a ministry of telling people God's unconditional love has been extended towards you and it's embraced you and pulled you into his very life. We're to let men know they're included. You want, a, you want a, a message of evangelism? Good news? Evangelism is good news. The evangel should carry the good news as they did in Luke chapter 2. If an evangel is not carrying what the angels carried in verse 2, then you're not taking the good news. Men are, are reconciled. Any sense of separation, any sense of division is, is an illusion. It's been conjured up in our thinking. All right, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to unwind a little bit. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I, I hope I've made this so clear this morning that this third pillar of inclusion is vitally important. And don't you ever leave the digital cathedral saying, that Keithley guy is a universalist. I am not a universalist. I believe that someday every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Might be on this side of the grave, other side of the grave, might be a thousand years from now, two thousand years. There's some stubborn people, but that's not a forced confession. God gets no glory. It says that it will be to the glory of God. People say God will never violate your free will, and yet they turn right around and say he's going to make you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. No, he won't. That love doesn't act that way. There's coming a time that subjectively we will understand the objective reality of what Jesus finished for all men at the cross. Here's our message. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I told you it's a good chapter, verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. And all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. This is, this is our ministry of reconciliation. It's not... You know, I always hated evangelism. It was embarrassing to tell people they're going to better turn or burn. 
But when you come with a message of good news, when you come with a message I'm teaching this morning, people want to hear it. I have found the only people that don't like the message I'm teaching are church people. Church people that want nothing, people that have come out of church, they that want nothing more to do with seeing the hypocrisy, they, they see it quickly. That's the nuns. The duns, or the duns, the nuns are those that have no great church to go to. They don't go to church. They, they don't know much about anything. They embrace this. I had a man in my, in my church that was a chaplain, full-time chaplain at the Department of Correction. It was a chaplain of a prison in Texas, hardcore guys. He began to teach this, revival broke out in the prison. The, people, the guys went crazy, they, they flocked. The meetings were just were sparsely attended. All of a sudden they were overflowing. Nobody ever told them who they were in Christ. Nobody ever told them they were reconciled. Nobody ever told them that God's love had been extended to them and included them and that they had been embraced and brought into the very life of God in the situation they were in. It didn't change God's opinion or view of them one iota. They needed the good news. People today need the good news. What makes the message of inclusion, and here it is, let me let me finish it out, 518. And all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world, not the Christians, not the believers, reconciling the world to himself. He didn't reconcile himself to the world because he was never unreconciled to the world. He was never separated from the world. Nothing can separate us from God. He's omnipresent. But man in his mind, Peter said, had been separated and alienated in his head. So he just took care of this death on the cross revealed how much he loved us, how much he cared for us, how much he embraced us. And he reconciled the entire, and the word there is cosmos. It means everything of creation. It's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though Christ were pleading by us we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled. Can you accept your acceptance? That's the message. If you're down at the street corner, you got the megaphone, just teach. Can you accept your acceptance? You're already reconciled. You're embraced. You're justified, redeemed. You're righteous. You're holy. You're a son. Can you accept your acceptance? That's, that's the message. Jesus' finished work and its provision to humanity is the only way. There is no other way. When Jesus left the 99, listen, when Jesus left the 99 to go get the one, he wasn't particular about what trail he took down to get it. The Father will come down any road to reach you. Any road to reach you. Some people may reject Christ for who knows how long. But the objective fact of the gospel is that God will never reject you. He will never separate you. He will never... Uh, put you into a eternal conscious torment in fire, customized torture chamber. That's just nonsense. The further you move away from that, the crazier it looks. He is the God who has successfully come in flesh and brought us fully into an acknowledgement of union with himself. So what's happening today all over the earth, it happened in your life. That's why you're here rather than sitting over at the Fundamentalist Baptist Church. He's revealed to you the reality that existed before you ever believed it, before you ever accepted it, before you ever knew it. He's the God who is filled to overflowing with hyper grace, hyper love. 
to everybody that was trapped in hyper sin. And the only legitimate response that we can give is a hyper thank you. Thank you, Father, for what you have already accomplished and done in our life. Let that be our message. All right, I want to, I want to say more about <clears throat> this pillar of inclusion next week. So this is just the foundation on inclusion because this is such an important part of a grace community's message. Nobody's left out. Nobody's left behind. And all the fears that we talked about at the start of the, of the teaching this morning, all those fears that were embedded into us all of our life from the time we were little kids, it, it, it messes with people's psyche. It's built on fear. Fear of hell, fear of judgment, fear of missing God's will, all those fears. Totally eliminated through the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. And you were there the whole time. You were co-crucified, co-resurrected. You're co-seated with him today in heavenly places. You're an heir of God, joint heir with Jesus. Jesus said everything the Father has is mine and you're a joint heir. It all belongs to you. It's a done deal. All right, God bless you. That's all for today. Thank you for praying with me. Make sure you hit the subscribe button and the like. And if you can, leave a comment when we're done here because other people read it. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you for blessing me personally, for walking with me, and for having skin in the game as we take this message to the nations. God bless you. We'll see you next time at the Digital Cathedral.